Let me start by saying I've been at church for every Easter Sunday of my entire life. When I picture Easter, I picture being in the same room with all of you, our incredible One Chapel family. I can feel the warmth of the beautiful sanctuary of Lake Travis. I can picture the newly renovated chapel at Liberty Hill, a church launch that we announced last Easter and is now a thriving family. I can smell the popcorn inside Evo and see the passion of so many from One Chapel Kyle. And of course, there is Austin. I can picture what it's like to stand on a stage, not an empty room, and have so many of you staring back at me. I can see us worshiping, laughing, enjoying being at church again. I can't wait for the party when we all get back together. And I want to say something right here at the beginning. I know we are not at church, but we are still together as the church. Maybe you're watching this morning and you don't go to church, but I imagine there are lots of other things you can picture that you've lost during this season. You can picture what it's like to enjoy coffee inside of a coffee shop, how it feels when a group of friends go out to dinner together, the magic of a cool pool on a warm Austin day, or the special memories when friends come over for game night. There are so many things that we've lost in the spring of 2020. It feels like Easter's been canceled. No Easter egg hunts in the fields, no spring photos, no dressing up nice to go to church. And as we've lost all of this, I, I couldn't help but wonder, is Easter a holiday that we take for granted? Where do you think Easter ranks in your favorite holidays? <laughs> I googled holidays ranked. Deadspin ranked it at number 11 behind Valentine's Day. Thrillist put it at number 8 behind Memorial Day. And an analytics site ranked Easter 5th just ahead of Halloween. As a pastor, Easter has always been the Super Bowl of Sundays. For the rest of the country, it's ranked somewhere between Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day. It's a junior holiday. What makes us feel so distant from Easter? Is it because it's religious? Christmas is one of the most religious holidays we have, yet we love Christmas. We love to play our favorite songs and decorate the tree. We love dressing up like it's going to snow, even though it never snows in this part of Texas. And every Christmas movie ever made is about what is the meaning of Christmas. Every Hallmark movie asks this question. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they'll learn the answer and fall in love at the end of the movie. At least that's what I've heard from a friend who's watched them all. I mean, you won't find me with a cup of cocoa and a Snuggie watching Hallmark favorites like a very merry mix-up or Annie Claus is coming to town. Now, I want to do a quick quiz. I'm going to say a holiday, and I want all of you watching to say the calendar date that it's on. Go ahead and say it out loud. You ready? Okay, here we go. Christmas Eve. Christmas Day, 
New Year's Day, Valentine's Day, Easter, Easter next year. <laughs> Not so easy with Easter. This is a holiday in search of an identity. We don't know what day it is year to year. We don't even know what month it's in. The truth is we've spent so much time thinking about what is the meaning of Christmas when I wonder if the more important question we can ask is what is the meaning of Easter? Now maybe it's most helpful to think of Easter not as a day, but as a season. The defining characteristic of Easter is it's set in springtime. This is when all things are new. There's nothing more exciting than a new beginning. I think of a young couple who falls in love, or maybe you think of the excitement of the first day on a real job, or becoming a new parent and suddenly you have a new title, mom or dad. But here's the thing about springtime. It's when things are new and the dead things come back to life again. Of course, as a pastor, I know seasons are cyclical. The blue bonnets that bloom will fade away again. The green leaves on a tree will eventually become a bright yellow and red and orange as their last gasp for life. The new things will fade away. And as a pastor, I've seen the way things fade away in our lives. This year, it seems like we've lost so much. We've watched amazing local businesses close, employees laid off, Maybe you've lost your job or you don't know if your business will even make it. Students have lost field trips, days with friends, and junior or senior proms have been canceled. So what does celebrating Easter mean for us in the midst of something we've never faced in our lifetime? Well, if you're a Christian, we're not just celebrating a holiday with pastel colors and Cadbury cream eggs. Listen, I love those things, but we can't lose the most important part of Easter Sunday. This is Resurrection Sunday. We can't talk about Easter without talking about the resurrection, and we can't talk about the resurrection without talking about death. Let's talk about how we fear it, avoid it, do all that we can to protect ourselves from it. Right now, throughout most of the country, we are sheltered or quarantined for this very reason, to protect us from spreading COVID-19. As I was doing research, one recent study suggests that Americans are spending more on fitness than college tuition. A quick search reveals we spend more than $50 billion on fitness and weight loss every year in America. Gym memberships, yoga classes, exercise equipment, all for the purpose of delaying the inevitable. Now don't get me wrong, I think it's great to do all these things. The Bible says to take care of our bodies and even refers to them as a temple. Take care of yourself. Death feels final and forever. It seems like something that can't ever be undone. That's why resurrection means so much. So I want to tell you the story of the resurrection. A story you may have heard before, but in this unprecedented time in our lives, I, I can't tell you this story without introducing you to God. We meet God in the Bible, and the first thing that we learn about Him is that He is a creator. On the first day, God said, let there be light. The second day, he separated the waters from the skies. On the third day, he created the earth and the vegetation. 
On the fourth day, he created the seasons. The day and the night. On the fifth day, he created the birds and fish in the seas. And on the sixth day, he created us. It started with Adam and Eve. I want you to picture yourself in this story. <laughs> no, you're not naked. But what if it was you standing in the Garden of Eden? What if you had to make the decision lots of Bible characters had to make? Is it really that far-fetched? After all, Adam and Eve looked just like you do. Two eyes, ears, a nose, and a mouth. What I want you to understand is God said, let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflect our nature. Do you see that? God wants us to reflect Him. And this man and woman lived in paradise. There was no heartache, no pain, everything was beautiful. In fact, life was only a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. We are designed to crave these two things. We are hardwired to connect with each other and to know the God who created us. We've seen how that's played out in the last few weeks. Even as we're isolated, we're desperate to find new ways to connect with each other. We're doing yoga parties and workout classes in front yards where even when you can't be near each other, we see each other. Online engagement is at an all-time high. Zoom calls are a way we all live in boxes on computer screens and our staff meetings look like the opening credits of the Brady Bunch. Also, prayer is increasing. I've prayed for more people in the last month than in all my years in ministry. We've launched 40 days of prayer at one chapel and day and night prayer meetings have been started all around the world. So if it's all about connecting with each other and God, where did the story of Adam and Eve go wrong? Well, it turned with a tree. The Bible calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But here's what's really interesting. God says, if you eat from this tree, you will die. Now Adam and Eve stayed away from this tree for a while, but before long the temptation sets in. They get told by a deceiver, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything from good to evil. So Adam and Eve ate from that tree. And the serpent was right. They didn't die. But their decision to reach out and take hold of life on their own terms actually separated them from God and brought death into the world for the first time. You have to understand this act was a symbol of our desires, our seeking of power, our thirst to control, and our defiance of God's ways that brought sin into our world. Adam and Eve were kicked out of paradise. The Genesis account tells us it is to keep them from eating from another tree, the tree of life, which could cause them to live forever in their separated and sinful state. Clearly, the tree of life held a power all its own. But Genesis chapter 3 shows Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and by chapter 4, things quickly get worse. Two brothers named Cain and Abel bring offerings to God. God finds Abel's pleasing, and Cain becomes jealous. That jealousy, that anger, that bitterness causes the first recorded murder in human history. One brother takes the life of another. That sin that's 
in the world suddenly has real consequences. The Bible is clear what's at stake. This is life and death. Sin is your ability to hurt yourself and others. Sin is that thing that you can't let go of. Sin is that deep, dark secret that you can never, ever say to anyone. God gave us rules to keep us from hurting each other and ourselves. There are actually a lot of rules in the Old Testament, most famously, the Ten Commandments. They're written on tablets, and they told us things like, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and honor your parents. God's rules were really clear. Our ability to keep those rules, well, that's where it gets messy. Our sinful nature continued. The fallout was so destructive. There was hurt and shame and isolation and fear. And here's the thing about sin. When it's our sin, we want mercy. Please forgive me, wipe it clean and make it disappear, we say. When it's someone else's sin, we want justice. They owe us a debt. They must pay. They must suffer. This is not okay and we thirst for retribution. It's a paradox, the way we want forgiveness for our own mistakes and justice for the sins of others. It was at the height of this human desperation that the Son of God entered our broken world. Not as a powerful being, but as a baby. Small, fragile, and given to first-time parents in the most shocking pregnancy announcement in human history. How could he be the savior of the world? He couldn't even change his own diaper. He could have used his power for anything, to build a kingdom, to overtake armies. But you know what he used it for? He used it to bring people together, to heal the sick, to restore those who had been marginalized. Jesus sat with tax collectors, adulterers, beggars, immigrants, and the sick. He also sat with rich and powerful and influential people. He sat with everyone. They all had one thing in common. They were sinners. Jesus came to not only be with us, he came to reunite us with God himself. And if we're honest, every one of us has done things that not only cause damage to ourselves, but it's cost someone else. We are people on trial. Mercy pulling at one side and justice at the other. This contradiction could not be set right. So instead of us getting put on trial, Jesus, God himself, stood in our place. Jesus was arrested, even though he'd never sinned himself. He was forced to carry a cross through the streets of his own hometown. They took him to a hill called Golgotha and hung him on an old wooden cross. The same crowds that cheered for him, the same people he sat at the table with, had turned their backs on him. Was Jesus angry at us? Did he hate us? No, he knew this was why he was here. The separation from God that had taken place at the garden was finally coming to an end. Justice was satisfied so mercy could take its place. Jesus was telling us, let me take that sin from you. Give that burden to me instead. Let me carry it. And at that moment, he opened the door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, and horror. He took it all on. But when it was over, he simply proclaimed, It is finished. His followers must have thought, How is he really gone? 
It felt like the end. It felt like everything had fallen apart. I'm more familiar with this feeling right now than any Easter I've ever lived through. The disciples and followers of Jesus felt like they had the rug pulled out from under them. Their sorrow and grief was palpable. I wonder if we all feel the same this Easter. I think sometimes we want to rush past Good Friday and get to the happy part of the story. Right now, we may feel like we don't even get a chance to get to that part of the story. We're in the unknown, the suffering, and the pain. And here's what I want you to know. Jesus came to identify with our suffering. He experienced pain and torture and death firsthand. But this good man who died on an evil wooden cross would suddenly and decisively turn that cross into a tree of life for you and me. Earlier this year, even though it seems like a lifetime ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. I got to walk the actual steps where Jesus walked. I saw where he was questioned, whipped, tortured, and the hill where he was crucified. Actually, standing in those spots was a profound experience for me. Because you know what? It reminded me this really happened. This is not just some nice fairy tale. This is not a Disney movie. This is God himself coming down from heaven and giving his life so you and I can have life everlasting. Jesus' death was real. Just like the pain you may be facing this Easter is real. But for everyone who's watching here, I have good news for you today. Death did not last forever. Resurrection was coming. Here's how the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Easter. Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. How significant is this event? Well, author and theologian Tim Keller said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I started today with a question. What is the meaning of Easter? But the better question is, what is the meaning of the resurrection? And here's the reality. The power of the resurrection literally changed the world. The Apostle Paul in his letters published just shortly after Jesus' death talks about this resurrection. He references more than 500 witnesses who saw him alive after his very public death. All of his letters imply you can believe that this happened. Just ask any of the eyewitnesses for yourself. It would be like writing about 9-11 a few years later and saying, you can believe 9-11 happened, just ask someone who watched it firsthand. Or like a soldier saying you can believe Vietnam happened. 
Or maybe one day, your grandkids will ask, what was it like to live through the coronavirus? You'll be able to tell the story you've walked out over these last weeks and months. To this day, multiple eyewitnesses with corroborating stories are one of the most reliable sources we have in our courts of law. These biblical eyewitnesses were so inspired by the resurrection that they literally gave their lives. You see, the resurrection reoriented their reality and caused them to believe that anything is possible. These humble followers were transformed by the resurrection and that power is here for you and me today. What the first humans sought after was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what God gave back to us is a tree of life. He offered us a relationship so we could forgive, pray, love others, and heal the world like he did. Now in my life as a pastor and a follower of Jesus, I've seen the way believers have become carriers of this hope and life to others. In this difficult time that not just our country is facing, but the whole world is dealing with, I've watched the church be some of the first to step up. We've been the ones who've given, who've provided, who've delivered groceries, prayed and supplied medical equipment. We've shown the love of God in so many practical ways. Now let me tell you one last story. My first granddaughter was born last year as a preemie. Just over four pounds of tiny toes, fingers, flesh and bones. She was hooked up to literally millions of dollars worth of equipment for several weeks. She lived in a box pumped full of oxygen for the first month of her life. As incredibly skilled nurses and doctors tended to her, hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent keeping her alive. And I'm so grateful. See, Georgia May is now a healthy nine-month-old crawling around like crazy. Life. We can't put a price tag on it. We value it, we cling to it, and we embrace it like nothing else. We've sacrificed a lot during this season. We give all that we have so that we can save a life. What the world is doing right now is the picture of the gospel. We're laying down our lives, our livelihoods. So many heroes from doctors to those stocking the shelves so we can still eat are laying down their lives so we can go on. This is what Jesus did. And we can take comfort in the words he said. Words like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Resurrection means life instead of death. I've been saying this for years now, but we're part of a great story. The Church of Jesus Christ has walked through war, famine, sickness, plagues, poverty, and destruction. It hasn't been easy, but this is the time when the world needs hope. This is the time where we must find strength in Jesus, our resurrected Christ. This is not the end of our story. The story goes on. <laughs>